All right, well, uh, yeah, once again, good morning and happy Mother's Day. Uh, thank you guys for coming out, and uh, yeah, we're just uh, always so blessed to be able to worship together uh, as a family of God here. Uh, we're back in our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark and in the life of Jesus, and uh, today we're looking at a very famous passage known as the Feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000, if you didn't know, uh, this miracle is the one miracle that repeats in all four of the Gospels, okay? All four of the Gospels. So there are some miracles that are unique to a certain Gospel uh, writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Some have like, you know, are repeated twice or three times, but only the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four of the Gospels. And so that should kind of alert us to the importance of this miracle. Um, If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage today uh, in Mark 6, starting at verse 30. Mark chapter 6. Uh, starting at verse 30, and we're going to only read the uh, first four verses together, and then we'll uh, go on to the rest of the passage. But Mark 6, uh, verse 30, may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Amen. Amen. Let's pause there for now. Now, as I study this passage... And as I was going through various commentaries and articles, I was shocked to realize that this passage meant far more than I had originally thought. Okay, so just confession, pastors gloss over passages too. So if you're like, you read something, you're like, I know it, and then you just go to the next thing and look for something more interesting, uh, we're, we're guilty of that as well. And so I studied this passage, and, and already going in, I had a feeling of what I was going to say. Uh, I was like, yeah, I think I know the story of the the feeding of the 5,000. I have a grip on it. I'm assuming the main point is going to be something about Jesus performing an amazing miracle to feed thousands and proving that he is the son of God, proving his power, displaying his power and showing everyone that he is the Messiah. And, And that seems pretty straightforward. And my task then is to make it compelling to all of you guys. And so I'm studying and thinking it through, and I realize that that summary is just inadequate. It's simplistic. It's true, but it's simplistic. And there's so much more depth to the story than Jesus just showing his power and proving that he's God, okay? Another interpretation you might have heard on this passage might focus on the story of the the five loaves and the two fish. And the apostle John, he writes about this being a boy's lunch. And the disciples take this boy's lunch. (laughs) You know, he's like, Jesus needs it. And he he just gives it up. and, And then you hear that story, and you're like, this is the moral, that, that, that Jesus is able to take the small things that we give him and multiply it to have an incredible outcome. You guys have heard that before, right? You know, he'll take the small offering that you give, and he'll just multiply it for an incredible outcome. He did that with this boy's lunch, and he can do that with our resources as well. We just have to have the willingness to share. We just have to have the willingness to sacrifice and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Now, that, that, that makes sense as well, and that's kind of true also. But I'm going to say, if that's what you've grown up learning and thinking that this passage is about, you're also missing the mark. You're also missing the mark. So what's the main point of this passage? 
It's this. The great feeding, the great feeding reveals that Jesus is the greater Moses, that he's the greater Moses, and he's leading his people into a greater exodus, okay? Jesus is the greater Moses, and he's leading his people into a new exodus, a greater exodus, even, um, yeah, something that far surpasses what we've learned about in the, new, in the Old Testament. You see, the first Moses, he let Israel out of slavery and bondage from Egypt, But the greater Moses, Jesus, will lead his people out of slavery and out of bondage from under sin. Who is a greater foe, Pharaoh or sin, right? What is a harsher penalty? What is a harsher sentence, earthly slavery or eternal condemnation, eternal hell, right? Jesus is a greater Moses, and he leads us to a greater exodus, As we unpack our passage today, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the need for a new exodus, the need for a new exodus. Second, we're going to see uh, the sign of the new exodus, the sign of the new exodus, and finally, the way to the new exodus, okay? The need for it, the sign, the sign is going to talk about, like, how do we know, like, it's actually happening? And then lastly, the way, how do we get there, all right? How do we experience uh, liberation and the exodus that Jesus offers us? Sorry, really quickly, um, I meant to do this at the top, and it's totally going to ruin the sermon recording, but I think like 30 people listen to it, so it's no big, no big deal. Um, congratulations, All Nations Softball Men's Tournament Team. We won our first game. We've been playing for like three or four years, and we won our first game ever, and it was fantastic yesterday. And so if I have a li- yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of a limp. If you follow me on Instagram, I, uh, my right ankle is wrapped. And um, I could only play three games, and I went home. And then like, the other guys, they played two more playoff games, and, and then they won a playoff game, so they actually made it to the second round of the playoffs. It was fantastic. So, um, yeah, mad props. Mad pro- okay, anyway, sorry. Total distraction, but I, I just want to yeah, recognize them and, and uh, celebrate that, that win uh, first time. Okay, so new need, uh, the need for a new exodus. Need for a new exodus. Okay. In the beginning of our passage, we're told uh, that the apostles have returned from their first mission trip. Earlier in chapter 6, Jesus sent out all of his disciples, right? He sent his disciples out two by two, right? Two by two. And he says, go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Go out and, and share the gospel. And he gave them authority to heal the sick. He gave them authority to cast out demons, and they obeyed. And they went out, and they had amazing success. I mean, they were just amazed that they could be used by God for such amazing purposes. And they come back, and they're excited, but they're also exhausted. They're exhausted. One commentator says that their mission trip might have been about, um, about six months, six to nine months, okay? Six to nine months, and they're, they're out just preaching and proclaiming, and they're, they're going into towns and cities all throughout Galilee, Right? And so this is important because that means that, that there's like a maybe six to nine month gap. Maybe Jesus just went up into the mountains and prayed until the disciples finished their trip and came back. And so that kind of explains some of the excitement, right? Some of the, 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 the craze and the frenzy that comes as the people like see Jesus and, and, and they go crazy about him. But um, so they're on this like six to nine month long mission trip. They return, they're exhausted. Jesus sees them and he tells them, come away with me. Come to a desolate place, a lonely place, an isolated place, and rest. Jesus sees his disciples, and he wants them to rest, and he wants to be with them. And he's reminding them that that your rest is in my presence. 
okay? Your rest, disciples, is in my presence. So they get in a boat with Jesus, and they sail away for a retreat. But large crowds of thousands have gathered, right? Uh, Capernaum, it was like the, 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 uh, the center of their ministry, and that, that supposedly only had about 2,000 people in it, right? So if every person of Capernaum had gathered to follow Jesus, that's still less than half of the total count. And Mark tells us that people from all the surrounding towns heard that Jesus and the disciples had rebanded together. And so they all meet in this, in this area, the Sea of Galilee. They see Jesus. Okay, there's 5,000 men and an unknown number of women and children, and they won't leave Jesus and the disciples alone. Okay? Like a horde of groupies chasing rock stars, these crowds see Jesus in the boat, and they're rowing across, and they're just estimating, and they're just running along the shore following Jesus and the disciples. And you guys might think that's a little silly. That's a little crazy. But I heard that there are women in our church, when there are K-pop stars visiting LA, they get on Instagram. They get on Instagram and they start stalking. They go to this cafe. They go to this restaurant looking for Zion tea or Big Bang or any of those like Little Bang, whatever it might be. And they're, they're looking for all these people. And so we know, we know what it's like to be a groupie. We know what it's like to chase like stars and people that were, were genuinely interested. And this is what's going on. They're like, Jesus is back. He's been off grid. The disciples have been scattered. They are all back together and crazy things are going to happen. So thousands have gathered. They're running him down. They estimate where he's landing and they see that they're about to land and they cut him off and they're just waiting. They're waiting. The disciples expected a retreat. They expected rest. Instead, they get thousands of people, and they're waiting for a revolution. They're actually waiting for a revolution. Now, why do I say revolution? Why do I say this? Okay? We've mentioned this several times throughout the series, but during Jesus' day, Israel okay, was not an independent nation. They were a Roman colony. They were a conquered peoples. Okay? They had a king, King Herod, but he was a puppet king who just served under Roman authority. He served Caesar, and he did ultimately what Caesar wanted him to do. Okay? And Israel was tired. They were tired of being ruled by foreign emperors, whether it was Persia, Egypt, or Rome. And Israel wanted their independence back. They wanted their freedom back, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come and liberate them once and for all. This was at the heart of every true, faithful, nationalistic Jew. They wanted their freedom, their independence back. Now, it's important to note that Jesus and the crowd they are gathered in a desolate place, desolate place. And that's actually translated as the wilderness, okay? So they're gathered in the wilderness, not in the major city. They're not in Jerusalem, right, the capital of Israel. No, no, no. They're in a desolate wilderness place. And the wilderness is so important to Israel because the wilderness is where all of Israel's great revolutions begun began, right? In America, we think of like Boston, Boston Tea Party, that's where it all got started, or maybe like Philadelphia, and, and you think of these like key places that are markers for American independence, right? The wilderness is Jewish independence. That's the marker. That's the, that's the locus, right? The Old Testament prophets, they operated out of the wilderness. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, right? They were operated out of the wilderness. Moses, he begins his ministry where? It's in the wilderness. 
He's shepherding, and that's where he meets God as a burning bush. And that's where all of his ministry, his call, that begins. Jesus was now in the wilderness with thousands of people gathered around him. And they've heard. They've heard of Jesus. Many have seen him do miracles. He's raised the dead. He cast the demons out. He's healed the sick. And now, just think of the scene. 5,000 men, thousands of women and children, they're gathered by, this, uh, by the shores of Galilee, just eager and excited. And in their hearts, they're longing for Jesus to liberate them. We also know that revolution was in the hearts of the people because at the end of John's account, okay, uh, John's account of this miracle is in John chapter six. If you get bored with the sermon, you can just read that, okay? Uh, and that'll be good for you. Okay, John chapter six. And at the end of his account of this miracle, John writes that Jesus knew that they wanted to make him king by force, okay? After he feeds the 5,000, Jesus knows all these people, they wanna make me king by force. So what does he do? He slips away and goes up into the mountains, okay? He says, that's not what I came to do. I didn't come to be an earthly king. I didn't come to lead an earthly revolution, but he knew that that's what was in the hearts of all of those people. The crowd was ready to rebel from King Herod. They were ready to overthrow Rome and they wanted Jesus as their leader. They wanted Jesus as their leader. Now, the main verse of our passage is verse 34, verse 34. And this is Jesus' reaction as, as he's, he's getting onto the shore and he sees the thousands of people and he knows what's in their hearts and he sees them gathered. He doesn't say, gosh, so annoying, leave us alone. But this is his response. This is what he sees in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, at first reading, and this is what I did, I did as well, and so if you felt this way, don't feel guilty, but at first reading, we like to think that this is all about like the tender love and care of Jesus. You're like, my Jesus, TLC, right? Tender love and care. We get sentimental, and we imagine how much he loves us. And how much he feels for us as our good shepherd. And we're like, man, Jesus, you are so good. You love me as I am. You show so much compassion. You, you see me. You are the good shepherd. Okay? Let me warn you. Okay? Um, I think that that is one of the... Um, let me say this. Uh, biggest misunderstandings about our relationship and our view of Jesus. We like to over-romanticize Jesus, okay? We like to over-romanticize Jesus. We love to talk about Jesus, the, the lover of my soul, Jesus, right? And, and he is the bridegroom and we are his beloved, but we just love that like kind of tender, emotive language that, that makes us feel so hugged, that makes us feel so safe and makes us feel so affirmed. And, and here's the thing, okay? He is the good shepherd. He is tender, he is kind, but he's also majestic and he's holy and he's zealous and he's righteous. And when he returns, he's gonna return as the warrior king. And so I'm not saying don't, love tender Jesus. Just don't let that be the only view of Jesus that you have. We need a full orbed picture of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, okay? And so, um, yeah, I think there's many of us that just have romantic Jesus. We just want to fall at his feet, 
be in his presence. And, and, and that's cool, but we're gonna see a different picture of Jesus here. Because when Mark uses that word, he had compassion on them. For us, that's such a feely word, but it's much more visceral than just sentimental, okay? This word is very visceral. It's not just sentimental. In the Greek, it means to feel in your gut, to feel in the pit of your stomach. That's what Mark is trying to communicate. Have you guys ever experienced that? You looked at something and it just hit you in the gut. You had a visceral reaction to what you saw. This happens to me regularly when I go on missions. I've been to Haiti multiple times and uh, in our church, uh, not all nations, but my previous church, we went after the tsunamis in Haiti. And when I saw the tent cities, I mean just thousands and thousands of relief tents stacked next to each other. And this was still like three years after the tsunami. I had a visceral reaction in my gut. When I went to Brazil and we spent time in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo and we saw the favelas, right? The slum cities. And, and these, these cities are huge. I mean, thousands and thousands of people live there and they're just, they're just cardboard and wood stacked next to each other. The smell is unforgettable. I had a visceral reaction to that level of poverty and brokenness. The first time I saw Skid Row in downtown LA, visceral reaction in the gut. I knew that there was something wrong, that this was not the way God wanted us to live. This is not the way that God wanted our communities and our cities to be built. Jesus saw this as he saw his people. It wasn't all sheep. He had a visceral reaction to the destitution of these people. He saw how lost they were. He saw how broken they were. And he had compassion for them. And once again, what does compassion mean? See, we have watered down this word, but in the original language, it means to suffer with. He saw how much they were suffering and he had compassion upon them that he was willing to and he wanted to suffer beside them, alongside them to relieve them of their pain and of their lostness. This is how passionate Jesus was for his people. And that phrase like sheep without a shepherd, that's actually a quote from the Old Testament, a quote from the Old Testament. And, and this is a powerful picture that the prophets uh, kind of paint when they talk about uh, a people or a nation or a city that, that is filled with sheep without a shepherd. Uh, the best picture comes from Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34, it's gonna go up on the screen. Uh, this is what the prophet Ezekiel says about these false leaders in Israel, these false shepherds. Uh, verse two, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. This is what Jesus is talking about. When he sees Israel as sheep without a shepherd, it's not that precious moments, Jesus with like the flowing hair and the staff and he's gonna go and grab all the sheep. It's this picture that Ezekiel is painting. 
that the leaders, that the prophets, that the kings, the Pharisees of Israel have fattened themselves. They have cared only about themselves and they have not done the work of God on behalf of the people of God. This language, sheep without a shepherd, that is damning language. Saying the leaders have not done their job. The leaders have abandoned the flock and the people are in disarray. They have become food for all the wild beasts. If you keep reading that passage, the conclusion is this. God himself would become the shepherd of his people. God sees Israel, he says, I myself will go. I will feed the sheep. I will clothe my sheep. I will protect my sheep. And we see that come to fruition in Jesus and his ministry. Moses, he also used this phrase, sheep without a shepherd. And he was praying for the future leader of Israel, Moses and his ministry, and his time was coming to an end. And he knew he could no longer lead his people. And so he's concerned. And in Numbers 27, he's praying for the next leader of Israel. This is what he prays. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all the flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. Moses is praying for the next leader of Israel. And we all know it was Joshua, right? We all know it was Joshua, but Moses is pointing toward, and he's actually praying for a greater, a fulfiller, Right, of all of the promises, all of the hopes of Israel. Joshua was stopgap. He was stopgap. Right? Jesus is the greater. He's the ultimate Moses. Jesus sees the sheep scattered. He sees the false leadership over Israel, and he is pierced with compassion. He sees how sin has ravaged his people. He sees how hopeless they have become. But he also knows the prayer of Moses. And he knows the time has come for him to show himself as the greater Moses, to show himself as the good shepherd, to establish himself as the true leader of Israel and to rescue his people out of sin and wandering. The time has come for the new exodus. And the first thing Jesus does is begin to teach. Mark tells us that he teaches them many things and we can safely assume that he is teaching them about the kingdom of God. You see the need for the new exodus. You see, they had been rescued out of Egypt. They went into the wilderness and God did some amazing things there, but here they are thousands of years later and Jesus still sees all of the brokenness of Israel. Yes, they, they, they were able to shake off and run away from the, uh, the tyrant of Pharaoh in Egypt. But now they had a new captor, and his name was Caesar. They had a new master, and that was the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, these earthly leaders, these earthly shepherds, their ministry is so finite. It's so temporary. They need a greater exodus. They need a greater Moses. Jesus sees the need. Jesus himself is going to provide the answer. Now, the sign of the new exodus, right? How do we know this is coming? Because Jesus can't just say it and say, follow me. He needs to show them and remind them that he is working and leading them into a greater liberation. Let's go back to our text. Pick up at verse six. Pick up at verse six. And really quick, can we get the air cracking a little bit? I'm a little warm in here, so. All right, uh, let's go back to verse six. Um, and when it grew late, sorry, verse 35. Uh, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, 
This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away or go into the uh, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, this is Jesus, okay? You give them something to eat. And they, the disciples, said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them, uh, give it to, them to eat? Okay, um, they're talking back to Jesus, just letting you know. They're like, you want us to spend 200 denarii and buy food for thousands of people, right? They're talking back to Jesus. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Amen. Amen. So Mark tells us, Jesus sees the sheep that were scattered. Okay. He has compassion on them and he starts teaching them many things. Okay. And, and Mark uses that word many to kind of lay into the fact that Jesus started teaching for a long time. He probably went like Sermon on the Mount version two, and he just went long. He's had so many things to teach them about the kingdom of God. And here's what the disciples do. They interrupt Jesus and they're like, Jesus, it's getting late. Okay. The hour is getting late. There is nothing around. People need to eat. Okay, people need to eat, so let's send them home to do dinner on their own. Now, Mark clearly is telling us that the disciples are being rude to Jesus. But remember this, they're tired, they're hungry, right? They're probably hangry at Jesus, right? They just got back from their mission trip. I think I'd do the same. Actually, I know I'd do the same. Because uh, at my previous church, uh, to just kind of like honor time, we were, we were like really big on like trying to like keep the sermon at a certain number. Um, in the back, right, at our media booth, we decided to get these lights. And these, you know, like the like airplane lights where you like raise them. It's so rude, right? But, um, and I would only do this to our lead pastor because like, I was just like, man, you know, you were always going long. And so there were like different settings, okay? Uh, you, could, you could go like yellow, right? And then you can change the color. And they were like little glow sticks and we changed to red. All right, yellow would be like, hey, you need to start wrapping it up. Red's like, you need to end it, right? And if they're going really long, we would like push the third button and it would red flash, right? <laughs> and seriously, sometimes the preacher would go like 45 minutes. And I'm like up there. And then I'm like air traffic. And you're all like, it's just crazy. And so, and so like, yeah, I, I can't judge the disciples. Because sometimes when somebody's preaching long, I'm like, somebody stop this guy, right? Like, turn off the mic. And the disciples are literally trying to do that to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, enough. Okay, we get it. You're teaching many things about the kingdom. It is getting late. People need to, we have over 5,000 people here. If you don't stop, they're going to riot. Send them home, okay? Because even if they leave now, it's going to take them time. There's no cities around us, right? They can't just go to a grocery store or in and out or, or whatever it may be. It's going to take effort for them to feed themselves and their families. And so uh, you need to stop. The disciples are being curt to Jesus. Jesus knows this. So he fires one back. What does he say? He says, you give them something to eat, right? It's getting tense. Jesus and the disciples. He's like, you need to stop, Jesus. They need to go home. They need to eat. 
Jesus, you give them something to eat. And they get one more like smart aleck comment. It says, what? You think we have like 200 denarii? 200 denarii is eight months wages. And he says, do you want us to blow eight months wages and just buy one meal for these thousands of people? Now, the reality is none of them probably had, maybe Judas, right? Maybe Judas is just storing it up, right? But the normal disciples, they don't got eight months wages on them to spend on these thousands of people. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to show them the sign of the new exodus, to show them what is really going on, to show them who he is, the plan and will of God for his people. This scene here is full of redemptive symbolism, okay? Redemptive symbolism. First symbol, he commands all the people to sit in groups on green grass, okay? Green grass. Why is that important? I mean, they're by the lakeside, okay? So the assumption is, yeah, there could be, there could be grass, right? There, there would be watering. It's not salt water. It's uh, fresh water. The Sea of Galilee was a lake, Okay? But he says, all you people, sit on green grass. Why is that meaningful? You guys know Psalm 23. It's probably the one psalm that you guys know, right? (laughs) Verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Jesus knows Psalm 23, and he knows they know Psalm 23. And he says, go sit in the green grass. Why? because I am the good shepherd. I am your shepherd, and I am leading you literally to green pastures that I can tell you who I am, that I can offer you life, that I can offer you liberation, not just from Caesar, but from sin and death. That's the first picture that we see. Second picture, Jesus orders the people into groups, right? He says, don't just sit down, but group up. Group up by the hundreds, group up by the fifties, right? And, and that kind of, we just read that and keep going. We're like, I'm not underlining that. That's not, an in, that's not highlight worthy, right? And we just keep going. But here's what's interesting and so important. Moses did the same. Moses, as he's leading the people through the wilderness, and they need to start getting organized because hundreds of thousands of Hebrews are wandering through the wilderness and they need organization. They need help. So whether there was, uh, they need judicial matters, they needed justice issues, they needed food or shelter or provisions, they all needed little organizations, okay? Moses did the same. He arranged Israel as they were camping out in the wilderness by groups of 50, 100, and 1,000 Okay? They had the 12 tribes, but everything kind of broke down. Jesus is doing that, showing that there is a new people, a new Israel, a new reign, and a new rule being established here. Finally, Jesus gives thanks for the bread. He breaks it and then feeds the great crowd. Everyone eats till they are satisfied. Now, this reminds us of Israel in the wilderness as well. How do they eat? Now, here's the thing. You have to imagine hundreds of thousands of Hebrews going through, passing through the Red Sea. They've just escaped from Pharaoh, but nothing, but like literally just, just to pack whatever they could on their backs, grab their children and go. They end up on the other side of the Red Sea and they're literally like, what now? What now? We don't have farms. We didn't bring our farming equipment. We barely have provisions. What is going to happen? They cry out to the Lord. What does God provide? Manna from heaven, okay? 
They are in the wilderness. They have no means to supply for themselves or for one another. God miraculously provides manna from heaven. Every morning, as Moses was leading Israel through the wilderness, God gave them their daily bread. That's how they survived in the wilderness. And then they got sick of that bread and they asked for quail and God gave them quail, right? But God was always providing for them when they had no ways and means to provide for themselves. This meal points to that same reality. They are in a desolate place. They are in the wilderness. There are no towns, no city, no money, no food around. And yet, God provides miraculously. Jesus is the greater Moses. And this is the sign. This is the sign. Remember the miraculous work of God on behalf of his people in the wilderness coming out of the exodus. I am leading you to a greater exodus, a greater hope, a greater freedom, and you have a greater leader. As much as you guys revere Moses, as much as you love him and tell stories about him, there is a greater leader here, a greater prophet, a greater redeemer, and his name is Jesus. Jesus makes that a reality through this sign by feeding the 5,000. Last point, the way to the new exodus. How do we experience it? How do we get there? How do we experience liberation from sin and death? How do we experience freedom from becoming slaves to this world, slaves to our flesh, slaves to our passion, slaves to our addictions? How do we free ourselves from those things? Well, there is a way. Now, the great feeding of the 5,000, it not only points back to Moses, it also looks forward to the Lord's table, okay? There's something special about this miracle because it, it points back to the Old Testament in Moses, but it also points forward, points forward to the finished work of Jesus. It points to his last supper, the Lord's table, and ultimately to the cross. The method and language of what Jesus does with those five loaves is almost identical to what Jesus does at the Lord's table. Unfortunately, we, we remember communion, the sacrament of communion once a month, so you should be familiar with this language. Jesus takes the bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it, and he serves it to his people. Okay? He does that at the Lord's table. He does that here in feeding the 5,000. Now, what does the bread symbolize? When you think of bread, what do you think of? In our culture, we're like carbs, right? <laughs> Especially white bread, the wrong kind of carbs, right? But for the Jews and in Jesus' day, when they think of bread, they think of life. Bread is sustenance. Bread is life. And I love John's account of this miracle because in uh, John chapter 6, Jesus includes this great explanation of the great feeding, you see, the crowds are like amazed, but they also ask Jesus these follow-up questions like, what's going on? What does all of this mean? And Jesus starts to explain why he did this miracle, what the bread symbolizes, and what he offers to his people who take the bread. And the uh, last Bible verse of uh, today, let's start with verse 32. Jesus said then, then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus is telling us that what you just ate, the whole purpose wasn't just to satisfy one meal and to show off a little bit of divine power and miraculous ability. The whole point of this meal, the whole point of this miracle is to show you and teach you that I am the bread of life. That if you eat my bread, you will never die. If you have fellowship with me, if you come to my table, you will never be cast out. You will never hunger or thirst again. That is the point of Jesus' miracle. And that is, the re- that, is, that is a message so important. Each of the gospel writers included this story in their gospels. Brothers and sisters, we need to make the same request as the crowd. What do they ask? Very formally, they say, sir, right? It shows that they're not that close to Jesus, right? They're like, sir, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. This bread you're talking about, this bread of life. This bread of life where if we have it, if we eat it, we will never hunger, we will never thirst again. We need to ask Jesus, how do we get this bread? How do we receive this bread? And what did Jesus do with this bread? He blessed it and he broke it for us. This is what Jesus is saying as he's breaking the bread and looking at his beloved disciples and he's looking at, as he's looking at the crowd, what he's trying to tell us is this is my body given for you. How do you receive this bread? How do you eat this bread? It has to be broken first. It has to be consecrated first. This is Jesus and his body. As he goes upon the cross for us, his hands were pierced. His nails, his his ankles, his feet were pierced by nails. His head pressed down with a crown of thorns his side pierced by a spear. How do you and I experience this greater exodus? How are we freed from sin and death? How do we get that? It's through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Friends, when you focus on the cross, it will keep you from just a sentimental view of Jesus. This kind, just all loving and tender, but always weak and and meek Jesus. No. When you see Jesus and his death on the cross for you, the fact that he was willing to give his body and be broken for you, and then it keeps you from a sentimental view, and then instead you see substitution. That's the heart of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Substitution. I love J.I. Packer's definition. What is the gospel? It's adoption through propitiation. You and I become sons and daughters of God. How? Because Jesus takes our place. Jesus bears the wrath of God. That's what the doctrine of propitiation is. He bears the wrath of God in our place on the cross. That is powerful. And that shows us that Jesus is a revolutionary like no other. You see, every other revolution that takes place on the earth, okay, it is an exchange of power. 
Okay? When America and the America Revolu- American Revolution, uh, when we're rebelling from England and Great Britain, we, we have to overpower them. Right? We have to fight them. We have to win the war. Okay? That's the case. And for Korea to, to no longer be a colony under Imperial Japan, World War II had to end. Japan had to be defeated, and we were liberated. That's what the Jews were expecting as well. We want Rome to be overthrown. Something has to happen by force. All of the earthly revolutions happen as an exchange of power. But Jesus is a completely different kind of revolutionary. How does Jesus liberate us? And it's not simply by this earthly exchange of power. It's by giving himself, by dying for us, by going to the cross for us. Jesus becomes the suffering servant on our behalf. He is the lamb of God slain for our sins. He allowed himself to be taken as a prisoner, taken captive and nailed as a guilty man upon the cross so that you and I can be innocent. This is a revolutionary kind of love. This is a kind of freedom and a liberation. This world has no idea how to come to grips with. And yet this is our savior, a greater Moses, and he offers us a greater exodus. Now, for you and I, this is the last point for today. For you and I, um, if you've spent time in our church, we love the gospel. We love the doctrine of, sub- of substitution. We love singing the songs, Jesus paid it all. We love proclaiming that Jesus takes our place. He died the death that we should have died. He lived the life that we should have lived. And in his resurrection, we have victory. All of it is Jesus. We love to hail the person and work of Jesus. Do you know what we struggle with? We struggle with Jesus as our example, okay? We struggle with Jesus as our example. You see, first, to understand the gospel, you need to understand that he is your substitute. He takes your place. He finishes all the work on our behalf, right? We are justified by faith in him alone. But the second part of the gospel, and this leads us into discipleship, is to understand that Jesus is an example. And Jesus lives the exemplary life showing us what the kingdom looks like. Jesus lives as one who's liberated from trying to work this game of of power, okay? From trying to win and earn and live according to the approval of people. He's not about that. He's not about living according to the rules of this world. He lives according to the ethic of the kingdom. And that's actually what the Ten Commandments were about. You see, Israel, they were in the first exodus. They were liberated. They were purchased by the grace of God. They were all sons and daughters of God. And because of that liberation, that exodus, God gave them the Ten Commandments and says, this is how you are to live. Okay, Ten Commandments isn't how to become a son of God. Ten Commandments is how the people of God are supposed to reflect the kingdom of God. That's what that was all about. Israel mucked that up. They love to look back and talk about the Red Sea and the parting and those amazing works, but they fail to obey simply the Ten Commandments, okay? They love the work of God. They wouldn't follow the model of God and a kingdom people. Guys, we do the same thing. We do the same thing, and Jesus is our example. Jesus is the most free, the most liberated person. And in his life, we shouldn't just thank him. We should follow him. We should imitate him. And this is the challenge. 
My friend recently took a job at a church in New York, and I love the name of the church. I mean, I would never rename us. We were All Nations Communion Church, but their church's name is Exilic Church. Exilic Church. And with that church name, they are always reminding themselves that they are people living in exile. They are post-Exodus people, no longer living in slavery, but they are always reminding themselves that this world is not their home that their home, their true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. So their church is called Exilic. I was like, that is cool. That is radical. That's such a great reminder. And we need to remember that as well, that we are exiled people, but we are liberated post-Exodus people. Jesus has liberated us from sin and death. Satan is a defeated foe. His work is enough And if you believe that, then you need to live according to his kingdom and according to his truth, right? See, I love Tim Keller's quote um, about like kind of kingdom living and, and following Christ. This is what he says. He says, secular people, okay, secularism makes you selfish. Why? Because your worldview is naturalistic. Your worldview is all about um. Survival of the fittest. How did we get here, according to an atheist and a secularist? It's because we outlived the weaker species, right? We dominated, we took advantage. We we were able to leverage our resources over against weaker species, weaker people groups, and we survived. That's that's naturalism. That's that's evolution, okay? Survival of the fittest, okay? Darwinism is a very dark and bleak, Worldview, And the funny thing is, atheists and secularists, they still want to try to make the world a better place. They still want to promote justice and goodness, right, and charity. But the thing is, if you press in on their worldview, their worldview is not one of charity. It's where the powerful devour the weak, okay? Secularism makes you selfish, okay? Religion makes you self-righteous because you think you're better than everyone else because you tithe. You think you're better than everyone else because you obey, because you come to church, you do all the right things, okay? But what the gospel does is the gospel makes you a servant. Secularism makes you selfish, right? Religion makes you self-righteous, but the gospel makes you a servant. This is what Jesus has done. If you do not have the heart of a servant, the heart of a servant towards your family, the heart of a servant towards your church, the heart of a servant towards your community, the heart of a servant towards lost brothers and sisters. I don't know if you know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You might understand some of the doctrines about Jesus, but if you will not follow his example, if you will not obey him in his ethic, in his practice, in his heart, as a suffering servant, if you refuse to be a servant, there's, I don't know if you know Jesus. My prayer is that you would, that you wouldn't just acknowledge him, that you wouldn't just adore him, that you would trust him and that you would follow him. He is the only way to the new exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message and we thank you for your truth. We are amazed that in Jesus, we have the good shepherd. We thank you that in Jesus, We will be scattered no more. We will not be devoured by wild beasts. We will not be consumed by this world, but we will be protected by your mighty hand. 
Father, would you help us to trust in you? Help us to to see Jesus as our substitute and find rest in him. But would you also help us to see Jesus as our model, that we would follow him and imitate him. Give us opportunities. Show us our hearts. May we follow after you. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.